Welcome to the Essential Tennis Podcast. If you love tennis and want to improve your game, this podcast is for you. Whether it's technique, strategy, equipment, or the mental game, tennis professional Ian Westerman is here to make you a better player. And now, here's Ian. Hi, and welcome to the Essential Tennis Podcast, your place for free, expert tennis instruction that can truly help you improve your game. Today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by Tennis Express. Please check them out this week by going to EssentialTennis.com slash Express. Well, thank you very much for joining me on today's episode. Two great topics today from listeners. Number one is creating forehand Shazam. You'll see what that's all about. And we'll also be talking about when to drop shot and when not to drop shot as far as tactics and strategy are concerned. Uh, Before we get to those two topics, real quickly, I have an announcement about next week's show. I'm going to have a really special guest on next week's episode of the podcast, and that is Todd Martin. Todd Martin had an ATP high rank of number four in the world, just awesome American tennis player, had a great career, and has recently been coaching as well. In fact, he worked with Djokovic for, for a period of time. I think it... I think that was about a year ago or so, maybe a year, year and a half ago. Anyway, uh, he has been gracious enough to be a guest on the show, and I'm looking forward to interviewing him. If you have any interview questions that you would like to submit for me to possibly ask him, please do that by sending me an email to ian, I-A-N, at essentialtennis.com. Looking forward to that a lot. All right, let's go ahead and get down to business for today's show. Sit back, relax, and get ready for some great tennis instruction. All right, let's go ahead and get to our first question for today's episode of the podcast. Really looking forward to uh, to recording this show. Should be uh, good stuff. And our first question comes to us from Jay in Richmond, Virginia. He's a 3.5 player. He wrote to me and said, I'm athletic, but have to really concentrate to keep a long, smooth swing path, much like you compared to golf. Uh, He's talking about a previous uh, podcast episode, by the way. The problem I have is that I recently played while facing the butt cap of the racket towards the net and letting my wrist bend and bring the racket around, and shazam, lots of head speed, and I hardly moved my arm or body. Any tips on how to best incorporate this into the forehand swing? Note that I hit top uh, top spin on my forehand side, generally with a semi-western grip. Thanks in advance. All right, so let's talk about achieving that forehand Shazam, as uh, Jay is putting it. And what you're experiencing, Jay, is something that's, that is really important technique-wise. And you were referencing a, a previous podcast where I was talking about length of swing and how it's so important to ground strokes and, and to serves as well. And it does compare very, very closely to golf technique. If you go and you sit at a golf driving range and, you know, literally just sit and just kind of look down the the row and and watch everybody's swing, you'll see, and this is perfect, by the way, because you you get to sit there and just watch everybody practice. You can't really do this in tennis. There's not a lot of people that go out and just practice with a ball machine and just practice technique, but golfers do do it for hours and hours and hours. And when you look down the row of, of players at a golf driving range, You'll see a wide range of different swing techniques, and a large percentage of them are very tight and short and tense, and they don't release 
just like and that's what you experienced here jay was the release of the racket hen it may have been for the first time in your life i don't know i'm not familiar with your technique but but possibly this was the first time that you ever really experienced full range of motion with the racket and that that gives so much potential for power and for spin when you give yourself that extra length of swing you have that much more room to be able to accelerate the racket and also when you don't release the racket head and let it turn over and that's that's what we're talking about here when we're talking about the butt cap the very bottom of the racket pointing towards the net or towards your target that only happens when you allow the racket to turn around to turn over to release and most tennis players and golfers literally hold on to their swing. They, they hold their swing back because of tension or just poor technique in general. Now, before I answer your question specifically about how we can incorporate the Shazam into your uh, forehand swing, uh, just two quick things. First of all, this, this turning over of the racket, the, the release of the racket head, creating this extra racket head speed, it's not the wrist. And this is a really, 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 really big misconception, both on ground strokes and on serves as well. On both uh, forehand ground strokes and on serves, you should be pronating. You, it's very possible that you've heard that term before. If you've, if you've listened to my podcast for a while, you've heard it. And if you've done a lot of research online about tennis technique, you've heard about pronation. Pronation is the rotation of your forearm, not your wrist. Your wrist flexes up and down, and it also uh, um, kind of hinges side to side, like if you're um, using a hammer to, to hit a nail. But um, when you hit a forehand or a serve and you want the racket head to release, that rotation is mostly due to your forearm releasing. And again, that's called pronation. And it's, again, the same thing as a golf swing. That's the only way to really allow the, the club head or the racket head, whichever one you're, you're trying to swing, that's the only way to really let it release fully. Now, even if you are releasing correctly and you are pronating and you are nice and loose and relaxed, and you're allowing the, the racket to turn over. I, you, you mentioned something in your question here, Jay, that concerns me. And I, this probably isn't the way that you meant it, but I just want to be sure, just for your sake and for the sake of everybody else listening. You said, uh, lots of racket head speed and I hardly moved my arm or body. Please don't continue to do that. Uh, you, to get the best results, you should be releasing the racket through pronation by being relaxed, allowing the racket head to turn over and finish with the butt cap pointing towards your target. But the goal should be to use that release within the framework of a full kinetic chain usage. You want to use your entire body. That means, you know, legs, hips, core, chest, shoulders, arm, forearm, hand, wrist, all of that should be working together in, um, in unity and in the correct order. That's really what the kinetic chain refers to, is not only the usage of your entire body, but using your, your entire body and in the correct order. And this turning over the racket, again, which is a pronation with the forearm, should be one of the very last things to occur. 
it generally on a good tennis swing, you want the, the power, the effort, the energy to be coming from the ground up. So you want to kind of transfer energy from your legs to your hips, to your core. And then as you rotate out through your arm and then through your hand to the racket and then through the ball and the forearm, hand and wrist, whatever is happening there, kind of from the elbow down should be kind of the, one of the very last pieces of the chain. It should be like the, the tip of a bull whip that's being cracked and that's that's the last part. So if the, if that's kind of the only part you're focusing on, this is my concern here. When when I heard you say that you were barely using your arm or your body, if you if you you know if you discover how important this is, and then start emphasizing just that, and you start losing some of the other good parts of your technique, like core rotation and just kind of general kinetic chain stuff then over time, your results are going to diminish. They're going to decrease. I, I guarantee it. This is, this is a really important part of your technique, but please don't think that it's kind of the uh, end-all, be-all of hitting a good forehand. It should be used in conjunction with using the rest of your body correctly as well. Okay? So just wanted to be clear on that. And then to answer your, your question specifically, so it, it's great. Jay, Jay figured this out, this release of the racket. It's giving him a longer swing path. It's allowing him to release the racket head and create more racket head speed. So he's going to now be able to generate more power and more spin without putting in a lot more effort or possibly any more effort at all, which is awesome. So how can we incorporate this and really kind of make it a habit. That's what we're talking about when when Jay says incorporate it. It's just make it a natural part of his swing. And really the, the best and only way to do that is through conscious repetition. And that can be during a practice session with a, a ball machine. It can be spending time on the court with a basket of balls and just dropping balls to yourself. It can be hitting against a, a backboard. It could be hitting with somebody feeding to you. It could be hitting in a cooperative rally with a partner back and forth. What I don't recommend is that you do this within the the context of a competitive match, Jay. The way, the best way to make this a habit is to have it be practiced so that it doesn't count and you're not trying to win. So you take all those kind of thoughts out of your head and you just consciously focus on this release, the turning over of the racket. And we need to be sure that we do it correctly is number one, step number one. And then number two, while doing it correctly, repeat it enough times that it starts to become a new habit. And eventually you start doing it without having to think about it. That's your ultimate goal is to make it unconscious and automatic so that it just naturally becomes a new part of your forehand and you no longer have to think about it. So how many repetitions does that take? Well, it's it's different for everybody, but I guarantee you that that this is the only way you're really going to make it an automatic part of your swing is through conscious repetition over and over and over again. And we're we're creating new muscle memory. So we're we're, we're going to rewrite your old tight follow through with this new more relaxed uh longer swing path follow through on your forehand side. And that takes time. It could take you several weeks of practice. It could take several months of practice. I, I don't know. I, I can't tell you because I don't know you, first of all. I, I've never worked with you, so I have no idea how quickly you tend to pick up technique stuff like this. It's different for everybody, and different techniques are different for everybody as well. It's not just that 
some people always pick stuff up easily and other people's never pick stuff other people never pick stuff up easily a lot of times it just depends on the person and the specific technique that they're trying to learn so I mean, one way or another, we know, Jay, that this would be a very worthwhile addition to your game. So just start putting in the time on the practice court, being very conscious of what you're doing, repeat as often as possible, and then eventually our goal is to move away from thinking about it. We don't want to think about it, um, ultimately, and we want it to just be an automatic good habit, a new addition, an unconscious addition to your swing technique. So hopefully that makes sense, Jay, and um, great job figuring this out, and I hope that you continue to see great results from this. Thanks very much for being a listener and uh, for submitting your question. I appreciate that, as always. And if you have any more questions about this, definitely feel free to let me know. Good luck. All right. Before we get to our second question today, all about when to drop shot and the tactics of drop shotting. Just really quick reminder about the official sponsor of the Essential Tennis Podcast. That is Tennis Express, the best place to go online to get your rackets, strings, grips, straining machines, clothing, accessories, shoes, whatever you happen to uh, to need. It's pretty much guaranteed that 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 they, that they have it over there. And uh, comes along with great service and free shipping on orders over $75. So go, go check them out. Please use the link EssentialTennis.com slash Express. When you do that, it'll put a little tracking code in your browser. And if you make any orders, a small percentage of that comes back to help support the Essential Tennis Podcast. So thank you very much to all of you that have been making orders through that link. And thank you to Tennis Express for being a sponsor. I really appreciate it very much. Okay, with that, let's go ahead and get to our second topic today. This one comes to us from Ed, and also referring here to a uh, a previous podcast about drop shots. Ed wrote and said, great to hear the drop shot being discussed. Apart from how to hit it, which was addressed in the podcast, it would be great to have your thoughts about when to hit it, i.e., how the drop shot can fit in, into an overall game strategy. I know from bitter experience that the shot should only be played when I am inside the baseline and my opponent is behind the baseline, but beyond that, I would really love to hear your thoughts about how and when the shot should be used in various game situations. When I watch the pros on TV, I often hear the commenters say that player X made a poor shot selection in hitting a dropper, and it strikes me that players often use this shot as a kind of desperation measure when they have, when they have run out of ideas that certainly applies to me okay yeah ed that it's definitely kind of a, it seems to be kind of a pet peeve of tennis commentators on tv when when the drop shot is hit and it doesn't work out that for whatever reason that just kind of seems to be like every every announcer seems to think that's the worst thing in the world it's not always the end of the world if you try a drop shot and, and you miss it or maybe they your opponent gets to it easily and uh, wins the point. But there are times when it was just a very clear kind of a um, kind of a bailout shot. A lot of times they'll refer to it as where, well, I'm, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself a little bit here. So, so, I've got a, so I've got an outline here. We're going to split this up into two different sections. First one is when not to hit a drop shot. 
And I, I kind of thought I, I'd, I would come at this a little bit backwards and start off with times to not hit a drop shot because I think it's important to understand when it's not a good idea. And I have six different times that you don't want to drop shot. Number one is when you are deep in the court. And Ed pointed this out along with uh, number two. Uh, but number one is when you yourself are deep in the court. If you're not at least inside the baseline by a little bit, it's not that it's an impossible shot to hit, but it just becomes very, very difficult to pull off and hit effectively. It's it's hard because you're further away, and the, the whole effectiveness in a drop shot is to hit it softly and hit it in a spot that your opponent can't get to. They, they can't get there in time. And when you're behind the baseline and you try to hit a, a shot very soft and short, it gives your opponent much more time to be able to get there, number one. And number two, when you're behind the baseline, the actual angle that's needed to have the ball kind of fall, the, the ball as it's coming down on your opponent's side should already be dropping. It should already be falling. And you know the, the, better, the best drop shot bounces close to the net on the other side. The shorter it is, the better. And the deeper you are on your side of the court, the more difficult it is to get the ball to land short. And the, the farther back you are, the higher you have to hit the ball to get it to do that. And the higher you hit the ball, the more time your opponent has to get there. So it, it's just usually not a good idea when you're behind the baseline. Now, I've seen pros hit, hit successful drop shots from behind the baseline. But there have to be other kind of criteria that is met in order for it to be successful. And we're going to talk about that. So that's number one time to not hit a drop shot in general. And these are all generalities. You know, you, you can break these rules if there's other things present. But these are good general rules of thumb as far as when to not drop shot. Time number two to not drop shot is when your opponent isn't in poor position or off balance in general. So if, you're, if your opponent is in the middle of the baseline, already in a ready position, and you know watching you intently as you set up for your shot, then a drop shot is probably not the best play. Uh, the, and I'm not going to get into, well, I'm going to save that for the second part of my outline, uh, looking for opportunities. Uh, but that's another time that it's not a good idea, is when they're already in balance, they're already in good position, and they're prepared. The drop shot's probably not the best play. Number three, when your opponent has awesome speed and loves chasing down shots in general. Certain types of players have a game style that drop shotting them kind of almost plays into their strength. It kind of It's kind of their wheelhouse to, to make them scramble and run around and try to run you know, helter-skelter for a ball. Some players just like that. I'm, I'm, I kind of... And one of those players, I actually love getting drop shotted. Um, I enjoy the physical challenge of trying to run down a ball that is really far away. And I love kind of trying to prove my opponent wrong. But when they hit a shot that they think is really, really good, I love getting there anyway. Like for, just for me personally, that's like a big part of my enjoyment in tennis. It's just the challenge of just running down every single ball. And, um, I guess from that perspective, I'm kind of a retriever. That's not my game style. I'm I, I'm very offensive in terms of my shot selection, but in terms of running down balls, I'm I'm kind of a retriever type player. I, I love just running after balls. Uh, a pro player that would be a bad option or bad person to drop shot would be Andy Murray. 
I, I mean, he's kind of that type of player that just runs for everything. And it plays into his game style because he practices a lot of these like little soft touch, like finesse shots around the net. Like that's kind of his wheelhouse. He loves playing that kind of cat and mouse type type game up around the net. So if you have an opponent that just in general loves running down balls and their game style is such that they're really they're really solid around the net and they like playing that little kind of touchy feely type stuff. Then it's pro- even even if they're out of position, it's probably not a good idea to drop shot that type of player. So, reason number three uh, to not drop shot somebody would be that number four. When your touch isn't great and you're just not very good at hitting drop shots, you know some players just don't have any business hitting drop shots, and they might be successful a percentage of the time. But if that's just not your game style, if you're a big hitter and a big offensive player, if you're a, a you know a baseliner, just predominantly, and that's that's your real strength, then it's it's not to say that if you're a baseliner, then you can't have a good drop shot. But if you know that it's not your strength, then just don't use it unless you're absolutely positive that every other. Uh, part tactically is weighed in your favor their position they don't like running for balls you know they're out of position you're in good position you know you want everything else to be stacked in your favor if you're just not good at having good touch and good feel and really dropping it nice and short so that's number four number five when not to drop shot when you're tired and you just want to end the point and these last two number five and number six are are the reasons why commentators usually kind of get down on professional players. So sometimes you'll be in the middle of a long point and you'll just feel like you just can't go any further. And maybe you've been run around corner to corner, maybe you've been drop shot lob and you're running up and back, maybe a combination of the two and you're just getting to the point where it's like I just I just can't do this anymore. I just I got to just end the point right now. And it's, as I said before, kind of a bailout shot. It's kind of last resort, like, oh, I don't, I can't do this anymore. I'm just going to put the drop shot in. Either I'm going to miss it or give them an easy shot and I'll lose the point or it's going to be great. I'm going to win the point. But you just kind of go all in on that shot. It's, it's kind of a, again, a bailout shot, I, th- I think is the best way to describe it. That's a terrible reason to drop shot. And sometimes you'll see pros hit a drop shot for that reason. And that's when commentators really get down on them. That's number five. And the number six, another reason why pros get down, uh, rather commentators get down on the pros, um, number six reason to not drop shot is when you're impatient and you just want to end the point. You just want the point to be done. And a lot of times this will occur when uh, maybe somebody is attacking, 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 and the, the their opponent is defending, 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 and just getting everything back. And you know player A has just kind of thrown the kitchen sink at player B, and still hasn't won the point. And it's kind of like, well, you know, I that's like kind of all I got. I might as well just throw a drop shot in there. And it's just kind of a mental like checkout shot, and it just. It's not that it tactically made any sense. It just is like, well, I haven't hit this yet. <laughs> and so a player will just kind of throw the drop shot in there. And you'll see the pros do this from time to time. Certain players will try it more often. Jo- Djokovic used to try it a lot. I-, I haven't seen him do this in quite a while. He's gotten so much more mentally tough uh, recently. But this is something that he used to throw in there a lot. Uh, Andy Murray also uh, will kind of do this at weird times and uh, kind of get um ostracized by the uh the commentators 
Um, so th- this is another reason to not drop shot. So quick review when not to drop shot, when, when you are deep in the court, when your opponent isn't in poor position, when your opponent has awesome speed and, or loves chasing down balls, or they're just good up, up and around the net, when your touch isn't that great, or you just don't hit that great of a drop shot, when you're tired and you just want the point to end, and when you're impatient and you want the point to end. So those are all reasons why you don't want a drop shot. And, and so I'm kind of coming around from the, the back end here, Ed, and starting off with um, poor decisions and uh, bad reasons why or when players tend to try to drop shot. Hopefully that makes sense. And as far as on the positive side of things, I'm just going to say you want to look for opportunities that make tactical sense. And preferably, you want to look for a combination of tactical advantages. Now, I just put down two quick examples of that. So as, and this kind of, you know, bounces off. It's kind of the opposite of when not to hit a drop shot. So here's two examples of combinations that you want to look for. Uh, You want to really make sure that you have the upper hand when you try the drop shot. Otherwise, it turns into a liability very, very quickly. So a possible combination would be your opponent is deep in the court and you're short in the court. And this is basically the one that Ed pointed out. So, I mean, and this is kind of the most obvious one. Your opponent is maybe on the previous shot, you hit really nice and deep and it pushed them back behind the baseline. And um, you improved your own position by taking several steps inside the baseline. Maybe they had a short reply and they're still recovering from way back behind the baseline. That's a great time to use a drop shot if you can hit it effectively. So there's kind of a, a combination of tactical advantages. Another example would be your opponent isn't very fast and you have great hands. So your opponent may even be in great position and in good balance in the middle of the baseline. Um, but if, if they're not very fast or their anticipation is not very good, or maybe even to throw another um, variable in there, maybe they're just bad at hitting shots around the net. And so even if your um, drop shot isn't great, maybe you don't have really sweet hands, just pulling them into the net is going to lead to an advantage on your side of things. Um, so just think critically in terms of tactical advantage. If, if you can have two, pe- two ways of having an advantage in the points as a result of hitting a drop shot, then it's probably a good time to do it. Um, if there's just one, it had better be a big tactical advantage. You know, your opponent's out of position and that's it. You know, you don't have great hands. You're not, you know, um, super far inside the baseline, etc. Well, they'd better be way out of position. But if you can stack together like two or three advantages, tactical advantages, then it's permissible to go ahead and try the drop shot. And um, last thing I'll say here, Ed, is uh, work on the shot so that it's comp- competent before using it in a match. It's It's a delicate shot. Um, it's a shot that not a lot of players are very good at, to be, to be honest with you, uh, talking about recreational players and even really on the, on the pro side of things, you don't, you don't see a whole lot of pros that use the drop shot a lot and are really effective at it. And it's like, you know, they're known for hitting a drop shot at the pro level. It's really tough because everybody has very good anticipation. They're in extremely good shape. They're very fast. Um, and so it becomes very tricky to use it effectively. Um, at the recreational level, if you can practice it and become good at you know, just technically doing it and um, also be smart about when you use it tactically, then it can definitely work in your favor. And it's a, it's a really fun shot 
to hit when it does work out well. So Ed, hopefully that all makes sense. Please let me know if you have any further questions on that. And thank you very much for listening. Appreciate having you as a listener. And let me know if I can help any further. Take care. That does it for episode number 188 of the Essential Tennis Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it as always. And if you have any questions for Todd Martin, please get those into me. Um, I'm doing the interview on this coming Wednesday, and that is the 21st. So um, only a couple days after I release uh, this episode of the show. But if it's uh, before Wednesday... And you have a question, suggestion, please send that to me at ian at essentialtennis.com. And at this point, I'd like to read quickly uh, two comments and questions from last week's episode, number 187. These were posted at essentialtennis.com slash podcast. If you have any comments or questions about today's episode, by the way, please feel free to leave those. I do my best to reply uh, to all of them. And it's always great to hear what people think about the show, and I'll, I'll... usually try to read at least one or two of them at the, at the end of the next week's show as well. So um, first of all, I just want to say thanks to uh, Dr. Fred, who uh, very often leaves long responses uh, to the podcast and uh, left another one uh, for last week, number 187. Good stuff as always, Dr. Fred. And I wanted to read and respond real quickly here to two comments or questions. Um, By the way, last week's show was about uh, two different things, Um, easy volleys, not missing easy volleys, and also creating uh, big angles with your ground strokes by making more topspin. So first comment was from Soren. He says, a great show as usual about the overactive racket and taking easy volleys. I think you really nailed the technical solution to this, but looking at my own occasional problems with the sitters, I see also a mental bit that wasn't commented on in the show. Sometimes when I see an easy ball approaching, I get confused by having too many targets, especially in doubles, the closest player, a sharp angle, a drop volley, and so on. Being at the net, there uh, there truly are several targets. Too often, however, this makes me do a split-second change of mind of the worst kind, and this induces an overactive motion with the racket. If I notice this, my personal solution is simple. For the rest of that game, I am only at the best target available, the feet of my closest opponent. Never mind if he manages to dig that ball up. I'm still taking control over my mind and my racket. Usually, I, it just takes a few shots to get, get back in the groove. Yeah, that uh, really that that is a really interesting kind of angle to it, Soren, is, is the... I guess the mental toughness side of it and being able to make a quick decision about which target is best tactically and strategically and just stick with it. We, Everybody listening to my voice right now knows what it's like to make a last second change in target and just totally flub the shot, whether it be just shanking it or um, you know missing the, missing the spot and making an unforced error or it ends up being like a weak shot because you change your mind at the last second. Instead of putting the ball away, it ends up being totally ineffective because you just got distracted. And that's that's really what this comes down to is concentration and just not being distracted by all the different options you have. And this, this kind of just takes discipline, Soren. And I think your solution is very, very, very smart. 
Um, I really do. Just uh, after you make this mistake, just remind yourself consciously, okay, you know, maybe you had three options, but this, this one was the best option the majority of the time. You know, this was the the highest percentage spot, the most likely chance for me to win the point without making an unforced error. And I, I, I think you're correct, by the way. Most of the time in doubles, that ends up being the closest person to you at their feet and hit it nice and firmly. And I, I basically just agree. I, I totally agree with your thoughts here. <laughs> I think you're right on track there. And uh, thanks for posting those, those thoughts. It's definitely another angle that you're right. I, I didn't talk about in the show. Okay, and then one other one from Ed in Nairobi. Ed wrote and said, my question, and I think uh, Dr. Fred, um, again, talking about Dr. Fred, uh, his big uh, comments, um, or his thoughts, rather, in the comments, uh, might just have given me an answer, is how one should be adjusting the ratio of vertical and forward drive in my swing. This is what we talked about last week was, um, controlling the forward part of the swing versus the upward part of the swing to get the right amount of spin versus drive to, to create a big angle. I get the point about how to practice, but what are the technique fundamentals? I hit with a fair amount of topspin anyway, but I find that when I try to add even more topspin by doing a more vertical swing, I start to make mistakes. What I think is going on is that I'm trying to flick the racket upwards using my elbow and maybe my wrist. The result is flipping the racket on the follow-through, loss of control on the ball, height, and depth, and more than a few embarrassing shanks. I would love to hear your thoughts about how I should address this. Is it a matter of maybe shortening my swing? Or as Dr. Fred suggested, keeping the swing the same, but using the legs and core more while keeping the actual swing path in relation to my trunk the same. Okay, Ed, really good question. Um, using more of your core and your legs can help create more spin. There is no doubt about that. And uh, I, I agree with that point that uh, Dr. Fred uh, was making. Um, now, if you're looking for significantly more topspin than what you're creating now, then keeping the, the swing path in relation to your trunk the same is is never going to really get you any big results. If you're looking for a lot more spin than what you're creating now, then you're going to have to change the actual swing path in some form or fashion if you really want a lot more spin. It sounds like you're already making a good amount of spin anyway, so that's great. So you, you probably don't have to make a radical change. Um, but if you want to make a lot more spin, the angle of attack just has to change. And I did talk about this in podcast one in the last episode. Um, I, t- I mentioned that this is where the windshield wiper type follow through really kind of starts to come into play. If you're trying, if you're trying to make a very, very vertical swing, then having the racket come up and around in a circular path is very often the best way to do this. Now, when you do this and you come at the ball very vertically, it does make it more difficult to control what's happening. It is more difficult. And that's that's a big reason why I'm not a fan of the windshield wiper follow-through on the forehand. Um, for most recreational players, I don't think it's necessary for most players. And uh, it's not something I, I really teach to most of my students um, because it's just not necessary for most people to create topspin or, or more topspin than, than they're creating now. Um, if you try really kind of flicking the racket and coming up really, really vertically and uh, you miss deep, 
then you have to close the angle of the racket face more to keep it from going too far. And that's when you're going to start making a lot of spin is when you really flick the racket up and around at the ball really, really sharply and you close the racket face. The combination of those two things will create a lot of topspin. And um, just kind of shanking it in general, yeah, when you come up at, at the ball really, really vertically, you increase the chances that you're going to hit your frame. It's, it's just kind of it's just kind of a natural part of attacking at the ball that way. And um, it's kind of a liability that you take on when you try to hit a really, really heavy topspin shot. So... Um, hopefully that makes sense. Um, so yeah, it, it comes down to that circular windshield wiper type path. That's really the best way to get a super vertical uh, motion at the ball. Uh, reverse follow through can, is also another way that you can come up at the ball very, very, very vertically. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to get into really detailed like technical discu- discussion on it. Hopefully that's enough to give you an idea. And as far as controlling the depth and uh, mishitting once in a while, um, expect that until you practice it enough times to get more consistent at it. Expect more errors at first because it is a higher difficulty shot to try to hit for sure. All right. So Ed, um, Soren and uh, Dr. Fred also, thank you guys very much for leaving your thoughts and your comments. I really appreciate it very much. Um, uh, One more in here, Bob, Uh, Bob as well left his thoughts and comments. Thank you guys. And if you have any thoughts or comments on today's episode, number 188, Definitely let me know. You can leave those by going to EssentialTennis.com slash podcast. Click on episode 188 and let me know what your thoughts are. So with that, that's going to do it for this week. Uh, next week again, um, assuming everything, everything goes to plan, I'll have my interview with Todd Martin. Until then, thank you very much for listening. Take care and good luck with your tennis. Tennis.